this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network Literature Channel. I'm Duncan McCargo, a professor at the University of Copenhagen who also happens to read a lot of novels. And it's my great pleasure today to be joined by Claire Fuller, who's the author of a widely acclaimed new book entitled Unsettled Ground, which is about to be published in the United States by Tin House. Claire, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Set in rural England, your novel explores what happens to two middle-aged twins, Jeannie and Julius, when their mother, Dot, with whom they've lived their whole lives, suddenly dies. And it's a story that's full of secrets in which nothing is quite as it seems. And despite its apparently idyllic setting, the tale's full of dramatic turns, most of them rather dark. Unsettled Ground has just been shortlisted for the 2021 Women's Prize for Fiction, and it's been making quite a splash. So you've published three other novels, and your first book, Our Endless Numbered Days, won the Desmond Elliott Prize. Can you tell our listeners something about the kind of books that you write? I think you mentioned Dark, didn't you, in, in that introduction? Mm, yes. That might, <laughs> that might sum them all up, really. I see. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, they are quite uh, dark stories. I hope that they, lots of them have some hope at the end certainly unsettled ground does I think it ends on quite a hopeful note but right. but there's lots potentially that happens beyond the last page that is left for the reader to imagine where Jeannie's yes. life the main character might end up and I think that's the same with them all I don't really tie things up particularly neatly at the end of my novels I think that uh-huh. you could say that a about them all as well I don't really like neat endings in in the books that I read I like some ambiguity and yeah as I say something left beyond the last page they they all perhaps have some kind of mystery elements although I wouldn't say that they're mystery novels they just have some surprises sometimes the surprises are there for the reader sometimes they're there for the characters so the reader might know what's coming but the characters don't yes um, yeah that one maybe that sums them all up I'm not sure what a bookseller once said to me that the thing that ties all my novels together is that in all of them all the ca- all the main characters live in uninhabitable houses <laughs> right <laughs> I don't know if that's a genre. I don't think it is. <laughs> the, un- the uninhabitable house genre, yes. But yes, so that the word unsettled, which is in the title, perhaps could be applied to some of the other books, I'm, I'm guessing. And dark uh, is a word that you've mentioned a couple of times. And But then 
ambiguity and not really wanting to have resolution, but to leave something to the imagination or something further beyond the narrative of, of the book itself. To help give readers an idea of what Unsettled Ground's about, is there a short passage that you could read for us that might help us set the scene? Yeah, there is. I usually read from the beginning of chapter eight, but it does require just a little bit of setup. So yes. So I'll do that. So as you said, Jeannie and Julius are 51-year-old twins who have been living with their mother for the whole of their lives. And the book opens uh, and their mother dies um, unexpectedly. And they also discover after her death that there's some overdue rent on their cottage, which they believe they haven't had to pay any rent for at all. And they think they've had an arrangement with their landlords, the Rawsons. And uh, because Jeannie and Julius discover that they don't have any money, they decide to bury their mother's body in the garden and not tell anyone. So we know all that before chapter eight. I'll read just a couple of pages. Great. In the shop, Julius dithers. He's low on tobacco and rolling papers. And he wants, no needs, a pint in the pub. What to do with the money from the guttering job? If he wants to get any work, he'll need credit for his mobile phone. He buys £10 worth and some tobacco. In the pub, he plugs his mobile into charge. He sits at the bar next to Jenks, sips at a pint of bitter to make it last, and rolls a thin cigarette. Heard about your mum? Jenks, a scrawny man whom Julius has rarely seen out of the public bar of the plough, tips his glass towards his mouth, and Julius sees his top lip reach out to the beer like a snail feeling its way. What a bummer, Jenks says when he's swallowed. Yep, Julius says, licking his cigarette paper, sticking it down. Thanks. He waves the cigarette at Jenks and goes out the back to smoke. He has a blister on his palm from digging and he rubs the bubble of it across his lips, feeling the fluid move beneath the skin. He considers if there's a legal requirement for the depth of a grave. He wonders again whether they're allowed to do what they're doing. Sod it. He doesn't care if they aren't. He's taken off the turf and has gone down a spade's depth, which isn't enough. Won't be enough for Jeannie, and it would be an utter cock-up if the foxes started digging, or moored. He rubs the bristles along his jaw, smokes his cigarette, thinks about what the Rawsons say is owing. Again, sees Rawson shout, nothing, up the stairs to his wife. Remembers the contents of the envelopes in his coat pocket. Fuck it, he thinks. Fuck it all. When he's back at the bar and another 10 minutes have passed, Jenk says, you got a text from that bit of Totty who lives over the fish and chip shop. Something about a boiler. Bloody hell, Jenks, read everything, why don't you? Shall I bring in my diary next time? Jenks smirks, and after checking his phone, Julius finishes off the rest of his beer in one open-throated gulp. Boilers aren't his specialism. He doesn't really have a specialism, and he doesn't have his tall rucksack with him, but he wheels his bike through the village to Shelley Swift's. She's wearing a leopard print top and a denim skirt when she answers the door and lilac lipstick that she surely doesn't put on for work. Bloody boiler, there's no hot water, she says, as he follows her up the stairs. The boiler is on a wall in the kitchen, and as soon as he inspects the hole in the cover, he sees that the pilot light has gone out. He pushes two buttons, the gas ignites, 
A tiny blue flame shows through the hole and they hear the boiler kick in. You're amazing, Shelley Swift says. And when he turns, she doesn't move back. Her nose and mouth are out of focus, but her eyes, lashes clotted with makeup and hazel irises with a circumference of a deeper brown, catch him and hold him. He wants to kiss her, but feels he is too tall, too stooped, all elbows and knees. He is unused to an encounter like this, out of practice. Can I use your toilet? he says, and she laughs that husky laugh and lets him go. In the bathroom under the window is a shelf unit crammed with books. He pulls one out. Just like her mother, the title reads in raised silver letters. Behind the words is a close-up of some scrubby bushes and a patch of bare soil. Just visible in the earth is a woman's ear with an earring through the lobe. He shoves the book back. On the landing at the top of her stairs, as he is saying that she should text him if anything else goes wrong, Shelley Swift kisses him, her mouth slightly open, her tongue touching his lips, and he's aware of the waxy greasiness of her lipstick. He doesn't exactly kiss her in return, too shocked by the feel and the taste of her. When they pull apart, she laughs once more, and he almost runs down the stairs and out through the door. All the way home, he rides his bike without holding on, as though they were 13 again, using his knees to steer so that he can hold his fingers to his nose and smell the lemony scent of Shelley Swift's bathroom soap. Thanks so much. That's a particularly telling passage. It makes me realise another meaning of unsettled ground as this amateur and presumably illegal burial of the mother, which is carried out and is one of the focal themes of passages of the book, a disturbing theme that keeps recurring again and again and is also never resolved at the no. end. Uh, we're, we're left not knowing whether something terrible is going to happen to them for having committed this crime or whether it will just all be lost in the in a bureaucratic confusion. So the setting of the story, you've talked about these uninhabitable houses. The setting of the story is a bit unusual because when we think about recent novels, English country life, I suppose a lot of people imagine Argus Sagas, The Archers, but Unsettled Ground is far from that stereotype, isn't it? It's not even the Grundys in The Archers. I mean, the, <laughs> the Cedar family are desperately poor. Their lives are terribly precarious. And so in my day job, I'm, I'm a professor of politics. You could almost see this as critique of inequality in a bitterly divided post-Brexit Britain. Is there any kind of social message in the book or is that just something that you're using to articulate some other ideas? I didn't set out to convey any any social message, but I think there is one. I hope that readers feel something about that inequality. And, you know, most readers are not likely to be in the position of Jeannie and Julius, so I hope that readers might consider their own situation compared to these individuals. And also it felt like if poverty is talked about in this country, it is urban poverty that's discussed. Yes. And also in literature, I really couldn't find any contemporary fiction that was about rural poverty. No. Um, so that was really interesting for me to explore. And there's no particular message. It's just we should be more aware of these people. We should consider what some people's lives are like in the countryside when bus services are cut, when libraries are cut, all those kinds of things. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I mean, the theme that obviously looms largest in Unsettled Ground really is the classic novelistic theme, family bonds, uh, what it is to be tied to a family, both as a blessing and, and as a set of potentially burdensome obligations. Could you say something about what family means to, to Jeannie and Julius? Yeah, family means an awful lot to them. I think they are tied to family much more than most contemporary families because these 51-year-olds have been living at home with their mother for the whole of their lives, which does still happen, but is quite unusual. Yes. And the adult children have been kept there almost against their will, but without them realising that that's the case. So their mother, Dot, who dies at the beginning of the novel, has been very manipulative of their situation. I'm not sure that she has done it in a malicious way, but she has deliberately kept them at home. And they don't even realise that until she dies and their their world kind of falls apart. And Julius especially realises that there are some other options for him. It is really very much about family bonds and what happens when that reign is kept so tight between mother and children and she, she doesn't let them go. Right. So for me, the family bonds seemed very largely sinister, although, of course, there is the, the more positive dimension. There's the, the music playing that they do together and the sense of living in a very beautiful place, growing these organic vegetables and so on. But overall, the feeling that I take away is back to this question of darkness. Family bonds are an altogether mixed blessing. Yeah, I think you're right in this novel, especially between mother and children. Yes. But I think there's the, the family bonds between the twins are much more positive and they do really care for each other. Perhaps without giving anything away, mm -hmm. they have been misled, but I think they do look out for each other. And that is not something that they particularly fight against. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I mean, you've had a, a number of deservedly positive reviews, including a lovely one I think you tweeted the other day by Christabel Kent in, in The Guardian, highlighting, in this case, the questions about civilization, the idea that the twins are in some way rejecting civilization. They're appalled by civilization. Perhaps that was more in the, the subtitle of the review than in the, uh, the review itself. Was that a theme that you were really trying to get across, that there's a moral superiority or something better about rejecting civilization and leading a non-material life? Because I was rather seeing it in a more negative light, that their deprivation of civilization was something that had been foisted upon them by their mother's manipulations. Yeah, I think I would probably agree with you. I'm not trying to show that going back to the land and being self-sufficient and growing your own vegetables is, is a particularly positive experience. I think an awful lot of us, especially the people who live in towns and cities, 
think that that is some kind of idyll. Right. But, but I'm trying to actually show that when you get there, it's not like that. You might see a beautiful thatched cottage, but actually it probably has a toilet out the back and no central heating. So what things look like on the surface are very different when you get a little closer. Yes. I mean, the other redemptive element is the music. And again, the bond between brother and sister that's very much brought out by their playing music together, which they always do privately. And on this one occasion, they are, or certainly in Jeannie's case, dragooned into making a public appearance, which is, again, an incredibly ambiguous moment. Is this the highlight of her life or is this something that she regrets? But you're almost trying to suggest with the music, are you, that there are the other possibilities that are unrealized in their lives are exemplified through this capacity for performance or this musical ability, half-hidden thing that other people don't really appreciate they can do. So those from the outside wouldn't understand that they have this talent. Yeah, I suppose there's a lot in there's a lot in that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think they do use music for their relationship. Right. They actually communicate sometimes through music. There's a scene at the wake for their mother where Jeannie calls to her brother mm-hmm. by playing the guitar. That is literally how they communicate. But I saw the music as a very joyous element in this quite dark novel. Right. So for them, that scene in the pub where they do finally go and play in public, I well, I hoped for the characters and for me and for for the readers that it was joyful and uplifting. That's what it was there for, for me. So Jeannie and Julius get pleasure from it. And I also wanted the music there to show that Jeannie, who's semi-literate really, and has no formal qualifications, has left school very young, the education system has failed her, but I wanted to show through the gardening, but especially through the music, that she was capable of great learning and great skills, so much so that when she plays, everybody stops to listen. Yes. And also I think that provides the tiny, tiny little bit of hope at the end for what potentially she could become or do. Although it is this very fleeting moment and the folk music promoter fails to show up at the crucial night. And so, so, yeah, you can't yes. have it all happy. No, that's right. I, 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 I think I'm getting that feeling. So let me tell you, for me, the most unsettling aspect of Unsettled Ground from page one, it's all in the present tense. You don't why particularly is the like... Book in, why is the book in the present tense? Yes, is the... Is that something you always do or? No, I don't, but I I don't remember having a particular reason for it because I don't plan my novels. I just start writing and it's very much feeling my way when I start. So I wrote in the first person, I wrote in the third person, I wrote in the past tense, I wrote in the present tense and it's almost whatever sticks. So whatever helps it flow better, I go with. And I do kind of understand what the limitations are and the issues are and that some readers don't always like that. But I think I kept with it the present tense because it felt like most of the story was about 
a period of time that is happening now in this story time. So there's not many flashbacks. There's not a whole different time periods, which there have been in my other novels. So somehow it felt very much in the moment. Right. Yes. I I guess people have mixed feelings about the present tense. (laughs) But the main point for me is that it brings an immediacy and an intensity and there's a sense in which you can't take your eyes off the page because it's all happening in the here and now. And that's clearly something that does come through as part of the narrative as well. So it's very appropriate for the form, but it does to me signal that I'm likely to be as much disturbed as I am entertained in the pages that are going to, to follow. I have to say, when I read novels in the present tense, by the t- if, if it's a novel that really grips me, I stop noticing that. Yes, I think that's right. Yes. Over time, I, I became less struck by the fact that it was in the present tense, <laughs> but for the first 20 pages or so, it was certainly on my mind. Now, you've already alluded to this question of the ending. Of course, we don't want to give the ending away. And again, from reviews, um, some people seem to take the ending, as perhaps you were suggesting just now, as a new beginning, a note of optimism. I've got to admit that, again, I wasn't really so sure. And I felt at the end that, that isn't this just yet more evidence that Jeannie and Julius remain trapped in a terrible web woven by their late mother (laughs) and that in some way destined to keep on performing roles that have been assigned to them? I mean, how do you feel about that? I know you've already said that it's deliberately ambiguous. Well, it's, it's, it's quite interesting because before it was called Unsettled Ground, it was called, it, my working title for a very long time was called Just Like Your Mother. Yes. Which would be appropriate. So absolutely, you know, what Jeannie really wants is to get back home. Right. They are evicted from their cottage. That's not too much of a spoiler. And that is her driving force really through the novel Mm. and I don't think it's giving too much away to say she gets that but she gets that at a a huge price oh yes and also I think maybe she's not going to go off and leave home leave the village and get an education and become some Mm -hmm. somebody completely different she I'm not saying you can't change when you're in your early 50s but Jeannie is is not going to make that kind of big change but She's been taught by her mother to be the kind of woman who doesn't take charity, doesn't take help, doesn't ask for help, doesn't take it when it's offered. But mm-hmm. but by the end, she is that kind of woman. She has a support network and she relies on them and they are very happy to help her. So I think in that way, that's quite a big change for her. Yes. Um, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I suppose we're left wondering what might be coming next. Do you have another new novel in the works? Is it going to be something like this or or move off in another direction, a lighter direction or a darker direction? I think I I have to say, I think they'll always be quite dark. I can't imagine Mm -hmm. ever writing a happy book. No. (laughs) Yeah, just doesn't. All I'm trying to do really most of the time is write the kind of book that I like to read. And I like to read books that really stir me emotionally you know that's what I'm hoping to achieve and often I think the most dark emotions those sad emotions are stronger than the happy ones which are much more fleeting so my next book is not going to be 
a happy book either. <laughs> but, but what I always try to do is to finish the first draft of the next book before the previous book is published. Because right. the publishing process is so slow. Yes. You know, when publishers bought Unsettled Ground, it was probably a year or 19 months later that the book is published. Yes. So there are edits and lots of other things I can be doing in that time, but also I might as well get on with the next one. But I haven't quite managed it this time. So I'm at about 65,000 words and my novels seem, unless this one is different, seem to end up at about 90, 95,000. Yes. So I'm a fair way through, but because I don't plan, I don't really know what the ending is yet. I'm just writing to, to discover mm -hmm. and to find out what happens. But there will be another one coming soon. So you've been quite prolific lately. Well, I think also that kind of looks like it because of the publishing process. Yes. So my first one was published in 2015 and it's now 2021. Four books have been published, but I started that first one in 2011. So that's four books over 10 years as far as I'm concerned. But I suppose that's still quite prolific. You know, some novelists take 10 years, don't they, to write one novel. But I think a lot of people that, will be very happy with that level of output. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, maybe it's something to do with starting writing at 40 and my first novel being published when I was 48. Yes. I've got to get a move on. <laughs> right. No time like the present. Yes. Thank you so much, Claire, for taking the time to talk to us on the New Books Network. I hope we've inspired lots of listeners to read your book. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Duncan McCargo. I've been in conversation with the novelist Claire Fuller about her fabulous new novel, Unsettled Ground, which we might call a, a counter-idyll of rural English life, already making waves in the UK and about to be published in the United States by Tin House Books. You've been listening to the New Books Network Literature Channel. <laughs>